Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and give us a call. The number is 208-991-4783. Today's show is brought to you by the financial support of our listeners. Thank you so much for all your support. Now, the episode that followed last week's show, The Stockbroker's Daughter, is uh, lost. Uh, so this episode is the fourth in the series. It is called uh, Hot Letters. It's also known as Little Jake, and it's the Armed Forces Radio and Television Service uh, version of it. Uh, it is from eight, uh, July 25th, 1951. Here now is Hot Letters. This one's about Pete Kelly. Uh, 
All right, let's get off for a while. Who's your friend, Pete? I don't know, but he must be toned down. Mr. Kelly! Mr. Kelly! Yeah, son? I heard you play. You sound good. We've been better. What's on your mind? Father Cronin sent me to see you. Are you doing a little missionary work? Oh, no, sir, nothing like that. I'm an altar boy over there. Father calls me Little Jake. I sure got you working the late shift. I've been trying to get a hold of you all day. Father wants a favor. I'll make it a small one. I'm all out of the big one. And he just wanted to know if you could come by St. Timothy's and see him. He said tomorrow morning right after the 9 o'clock. Okay. Tell him he keeps terrible hours. I'll be there. Thanks, Mr. Kelly. Hey, Kelly. Yeah, that's right. Tell the kid goodbye. He knows his way out. Should I go, Mr. Kelly? Be the kid. Yes, sir. Goodbye, Mr. Kelly. Yeah. Goodbye, Jake. You got someplace private we'd like to talk. This is my office. Now listen hard, bright eyes. There's enough gun in this coat to blow you right through the wall. I'll take your word for it. We come in here nice and you get funny, mouth. Now you got someplace we can talk. I can't leave. I gotta do a number. Do it. We'll be right here about ten feet from your stomach. Yeah. All right. Let's go. You look sick, Pete. What's the matter? I feel fine. Who's sorry now? Everybody ready? Let's go. Start about ten minutes worth. Let's go. The alley will do. We need a favor, Kelly. Yeah, there's a run on them tonight. Give me the envelope, Dix. Yeah. You got an inside coat pocket, Kelly? Come on, come on. Either throw or pass the dice. Hold him, Dix. <laughs> Pull him up, Dix. Come on. Up. Yeah. Now, this is how. Here's an envelope. It goes in your inside coat pocket and it stays there until 6 o'clock tomorrow night. You don't open it, you don't mess with it. What happens at 6 o'clock? You'll be the first to know. Well, I stood there in the alley and watched him walk away. Inside, Lupo was blowing up a storm. Something about paying for a seven-piece band and only having six. Well, it wasn't worth trying to get back on the stand. I got a cab and went up to my room. I tried to get to sleep. It was no good. I got up. I was sick to my stomach. After that, I went to sleep. 
The next morning, I made a pass at some breakfast and tried to look through the sports page. Harry Heilman got four for five against the Red Sox, but that's all I read. That envelope had me. People have been taken out in alleys before, and they've been worked over, usually to get something away from them, not to give it to them. No matter how I tried to put it together, it wouldn't come out. Thin or fat, it wouldn't slice. I had the envelope, and I had to wait till six o'clock. Well, I gave up on the coffee, and I started over to see Father Cronin. It was a little after 9.30 when I started up the steps of St. Timothy's. I figured mass was almost over, so I hung around in the vestibule for a couple of minutes, trying to look like a part-time bell ringer. Hi, Mr. Kelly. Hello, Jake. Father's back in the sacristy, Mr. Kelly. He said for me to show you the way. They move it? No, sir. All right, Jake. Show me the way. This way, Mr. Kelly. Down this aisle. Well, I guess I was too busy trying to act like I knew my way around to pay much attention to a fat, chunky little guy wearing a brown Borsalino hat. He stood up in a back pew a couple of aisles over. The church was empty except for the three of us. Little Jake found out about it just before I did. Mr. Kelly, that man back there. All right, mister. I'll take that envelope. Jake, get out. Mr. Kelly, look out. Look out. Well, in Kansas City, you learn early to look for trouble. Any place, any time. But this is the first time it caught up with me in the middle of a church. The last three shots were a waste of money. Jake went down like young wheat in a hailstorm. When I grabbed for him, I hit my head on the base of a marble pillar. I lost the edge right there. By the time I hit the street, he was gone. I guess I covered every alley and street in the neighborhood. But it was like trying to wash a pail of dirty water. I don't know how much later it was when I stopped for a minute in an empty doorway and tried to remember what I was chasing. Well, a siren was crying off somewhere in the distance and I started back for the church. The coroner's wagon was just pulling away as I got there. I didn't see Father Cronin around, so I went back to the rectory and rang the bell. He came to the door in his shirt sleeve. He stood there for a minute just looking at me. Then he motioned me inside. In here. Sit down. The kid, Father? Little Jake? He's dead. You want to blow by blow? Yeah, I know, Father. I was there. Sure you were there. You're always there. I should have known better than to call you. I should have known it meant trouble. Oh, wait a minute, Father. This wasn't my party. I called you here today to ask you a favor, Pete. Yeah, I know. You don't know. It's too late now. We were going to have an altar boys picnic tomorrow at Washington Park. I wanted you to play a little music for us. We won't be going now, Pete. We got a funeral instead. Yeah. What do you want me to say? Don't say anything, Pete. If you've got any private fights, that's your business. But don't bring your beast into the church. I never saw the guy before, Father. Don't kid me. He didn't come in here to shoot little Jake. Now, look, I know this is hard to understand. You bet it's hard to understand. We've been over it before, but you ran with the same pack. You hung on to the same friends. You had it all figured out. Well, you figured this one, Pete. There's a nine-year-old boy on his way to the moor. He took a gangster's bullet that you earned. Now you go ahead. Figure it. I, I got this envelope. I don't want an explanation. Take your excuses and peddle them where you need them. The bootleggers and the gunmen. Take them to your crowd. This envelope, Father. They shoved it in my pocket. I was out in the alley behind the club. Two guys. They worked me over. I didn't think they'd try anything like this. Neither did little Jake. All right, Father. I told you I was sorry. Go on home. Why don't you stop cutting at me and say a prayer for that kid? I would, but I'm too busy praying for people like you. How do you explain away a dead kid lying in front of an altar rail? All I could offer was a two-cent envelope in my coat pocket in a wild night in an alley. I started to walk back to my room. I tried to paste up some kind of an answer, but I got nothing. I was halfway home when the last breeze left town and went someplace to cool off. My clothes were soaking wet, and I decided to take a cab the rest of the way. 
I reached in my pocket, and all I had was 23 cents, so I kept walking. Sunday morning's the same in any town. Empty streets and everybody home trading the comic section and living off of Saturday night. You could live here all your life, and on Sunday morning, you just got in town. It was about noon when I got to my hotel. I went up to the second floor and unlocked my door. They were sitting on the bed. Their coats were off, and they'd hung them on the back of a chair. The same two boys had given me the envelope last night. Real hot room here, Kelly. You want to move off this cord? Yeah, next time I'll get twin beds. Is everything all right with that envelope? It made a murder, mister. You take it. Put it back in your pocket. Now, get this, both of you. There's a lot of something wrong here. I've had my turn. You find yourself another fall guy. There's a lot of inside coat pockets in this town. Look for a new one. We like yours, and that's where it's going to stay. Now, you don't listen good. Me and Dex put it out last night, and you didn't pick up on it. We got you on board, and we'll tell you when to get off. Six o'clock, boy. How long do you think this jag will last? Look, I'm cashing in. I've had enough. What were you doing this morning? Trying to pray your way out? The priest wanted a favor. I got it, Lon. Yeah. Yeah, he's in. No, he's busy. From two five. Sure, come on up. Benny. You went for it, huh? On his way up. We're going to stay a while, Kelly. Well, there's only three chairs. I'll make it easy for you. Hey, put, mister. No, he's your friend. I'm checking out. First time you've been right. Well, it happened so fast I didn't even see his arm move. My knees buckled and I pitched forward. I don't know how long I laid there, but when I opened my eyes, the afternoon sun was almost gone. What was left of it was bleeding through a rip in the blind. Well, I could hear somebody breathing hard like a fat man on a hot day, and when I rolled over, I saw him. A tough prohibition agent by the name of Cage. The weather didn't make any difference to Cage. He always looked that way. His collar was wilted and it looked like Arrow's first try. His necktie was pulled down and the knot was twisted. The heat had worked him over so that the front of his shirt was splotchy and damp. Reminded you of a first grader's map of the world. He was sitting in a chair with his arms draped over the back and his head resting on his hands. He was smoking a Milo Violet, but it didn't help that much. His mouth was wound around a toothy grin, and he looked like a mountain lion who'd just eaten her young. You can get up now, Keller. You made your point. Yeah, sure. How long you been here? Long enough to fill out your book and slip. You're going to jail, mister. What for? Sleeping on the floor? For the dead guy on the bed. Who is he? I don't know. How'd he get there? You put him there after you shot him. I'll get your hat. Look, prohibition's your racket. Dead bodies are out of your line. Not when I find him in your room. Now let's go downtown. We'll both tell homicide. We'll find the details later. Gage, you couldn't find yourself in a mirror. I didn't have anything to do with this, and you know it. I've been out for the last three hours. This happened after they slugged Save me. Save it for the jury. All I know is I got a phone tip to check room 205. I come up here and I find you in a dead guy. That's all I need. You can dress it up fancy and make it look cute, but it still comes out. Murder. There's enough liquor in this town to float it away, and you're wasting your time with a killing that's none of your business. You're my business, big shot. Somebody put two pounds of lead in Benny's chest, and you're my pick. Benny who? Benny Davis. He worked for Mike Quinlan. You look pale. Yeah, I'm just beginning to feel the squeeze. Mike Quinlan on one side, and those two trigger men that you let walk out of here on the other. You got it, and I'll be turning the handle. Now, before you start worrying about your picture in the paper, you better turn up the two guys that were here with me. That part of the same dream? They gave me an envelope to hold for him. The price on it's going up by the minute. A nine-year-old kid died for it, and this guy here on the bed. That's a good story. Do you write him down, or just make him up? Look, you got nothing on me, and I haven't got much time. I'm leaving you. That's all right. I call downtown. The minute you hit the street, they'll pick you up. In the meantime, you better come up with more than you got. They don't hang you in this state on a hunch. I'm gonna check this room over. I'll find all we need. You couldn't find your head with both. Goodbye, Cage. All right, you got till midnight, big shot, and then I'll be around. Yeah. I'll have it all set up. All we'll need is time to run the extra. Well, I could have used a cold shower, but with Cage there, I didn't have the room to dry off. I went down the hall and headed down the back stairs. I figured even if Cage was right about calling downtown, I might have an edge if I moved fast enough. 
The sun was on the downgrade, but it didn't make any difference. It'd done a good job all day, and the heat was boiling up out of the ground. So if I was going to come out at all, I had to have some help. So I started to look for the only honest guy I know, an ex-bootlegger by the name of Barney Ricketts. The only bootlegger in the country that went broke in 1922. He drank himself out of business. I phoned eight different places and tried four. Nobody'd seen him. I was about ready to give up when I finally found him sitting in the middle of a bourbon fog in a little Spanish joint somewhere on the edge of the East Bottoms. He was sitting at a back table trying his best to make time with a plaster bust of Queen Isabella. <laughs> ah, Petey, my boy, you're just in time. I'm not quite certain, but I think the young lady here has a friend. I gotta talk to you, Barney. If you're any good at all with Spanish, now's the time. I was positive she'd loosen up on this second bottle of wine, but no, she's utterly uncharitable, and I think she's a picture of a perfect boy. Yeah, all right, Barney. If you a member of the old Castilian school, there can be no excuse for the conduct she's exhibiting. Yeah. Why, do you know I was even good enough to buy her three rounds of Portuguese brandy? Imported, mind you. But what do I get for my pains? Not even a civil thank you. All right, listen to me, will you, Barney? I've been sitting here in the most gentlemanly fashion, sipping this delicate nectar and trying vainly to keep the party going. But does she help? No! I've talked to her about politics, medicine, literature, Keith, Byron, Shelley, Faith Baldwin. I've even talked about the weather. Barney, she's a statue. Oh, a simple oversight, Petey. It could happen to anyone. Now, look, I'm in trouble. Of course you're in trouble. You'll always be in trouble because you're a child of adversity, a son of scorn. The fate spit in your eye and you try to retaliate, but the wind's always blowing in the wrong direction. You're a lost leaf in the mortal storm, Petey. You're a pebble shaking a tiny fist at the mountain. You'd like to fight for some strange, fantastic cause, wouldn't you? But you can't find anybody your size. Men are too small and the gods are too big. Petey, you're lost. You all through now. Yes, what kind of trouble? A pair of bum murder wraps. Somebody slugged me in my room and I woke up with a dead guy. Oh, dubious honor. You mentioned two murders. One of them was an altar boy over at St. Timothy's. The other guy worked for Mike Quinlan. The same Quinlan that controls most of the Canadian import here in town? Yeah, that's him. Oh, time's short. Let's finish the brandy. Two guys started all this at the club last night. Names are Ludd and Beck. Mean anything to you? This will all sound better with more brandy. Uh, you picked two of Quinlan's first string. Ludd Sandell and Dex Porter, both killers. Look, they gave me an envelope to hang on to. Now, nose around. See if you can find out what it all means. The dead guy up in my room, his name's Benny Davis. See if you can find out where he fits in, will you? It'd be a lot simpler if you just joined Quinlan's gang. Benny Davis holds a card in the same organization. Well, how about Ludd and Dex? Any bad blood between them and if Davis? If there is, it doesn't show. They're closer than unborn peas. You sure about that, Barney? Police blotter can't be that wrong. Benny's sister will tell you the same thing. Where do I find her? Chelsea Apartments. Beautiful girl, Petey. When you're my age, she'll disturb your memories. All right, now get going, will you? See how close you can get to Quinlan's headquarters. Find out what you can about Ludd and Dex and Benny Davis. Maybe Quinlan's got him on a special job or something. Find out what it is, will you? You'll find me in a temporary economic slump, Petey. I'll need car fare. Yeah, well, that makes two of us. I'm broke. You'll have to do it on foot. Oh, well, I have friends here. My credit's unlimited. Well, hurry up, will you, Barney? One moment. Alfonso, would you loan me a dollar and a half? Come on, let's go. He's only bluffing. He won't shoot. Well, Barney headed down toward Bale Street from Mike Quinlan's place, and I started across town for the north end in the Chelsea apartments. I couldn't begin to work it out. If Dex and Ludd were such good friends with Benny Davis, why did they kill him? And if they didn't do it, who planted his body in my room and why? Well, I was running way late, and there wasn't much time to catch up. I finally found the Chelsea apartments on the corner of Stocker and Bale's with an old three-story wooden frame. I checked the mailbox, and Louise Davis was down for apartment 17. Well, inside, the hallway was dark, and a couple of gas jets were smoking up the ceiling. 
There was a potted palm by the foot of the stairs, and it looked like it was growing out of old gum wrappers and cigar butts. Apartment 17 was at the rear of the first floor. She answered the door, and you could tell right away Barney was right. She was pretty, and she had enough smile to last you for years. Yes? You Louise Davis? That's right. I can do better for you. You're Pete Kelly. I've heard you play. Yeah, well, so far you're batting a thousand. Can I come in? Yeah, sure. You didn't bring your band, so it must be a social call. I'll make this short. It's about Benny. What about him? That's what I want to know. He's got a couple of friends. I got to know about him. Benny isn't that popular. You mean Ludd and Dex? They'll do. They got trouble and they're cutting me in. What kind of trouble? Well, I'm not sure. That's why I came to you. I can't help you. They never tell me what they're doing. Well, they gave me an envelope. They told me to hold it till six o'clock tonight. You haven't got any problem. You'll know in an hour. Yeah, well, maybe I'm tired. I want to know now. I'll take any lead you got. They found out I told you this. They might not like it. They got some kind of a beef with Quinlan. Does Mike know about it? I wouldn't know. I just heard him talking one night. They're not happy with the money Quinlan gives them. They got any plans? I don't think we've got to talk about this. Let me get you a drink, huh? Now, look, this is the last trip around for me, lady. i got to have everything you know. You said something about an envelope, didn't you? That's right. You got it? Right here. If you open it, you'll understand everything. Well, they gave it to me sealed. They want it back the same way. If you want to be around to give it back, you'd better open it. You've got a guarantee, Andy. All I know is the three of them are working on something big. I don't know what it is, but I heard some talk about an envelope. Your choice. You asked for a lead and you got it. Yeah, we'll hold hands when they cut me down. You got a letter open? Pete, look out! Well, it all happened faster than a Mexican divorce. Louise Davis was dead before the echo left the room. Well, I got to the window, but whoever did the shooting was gone. I grabbed the envelope, and on my way out, I took another look at her. There wasn't anything left but the smile. I cut through a couple of back lots and down an alley. I stopped in the doorway and opened the envelope. Inside was a handful of typewritten sheets. Looked like a lot of headache for five pieces of paper. And then the bell rang. Two of them were consignment slips for 8,000 gallons of high-grade Canadian whiskey. The other three slips were detailed breakdowns for a convoy of trucks. They showed special truck routes over the Canadian border into the States to miss the hijackers and the prohibition agents. They showed a day-by-day schedule for each truck on its trip down from the border. Well, it's not too tough to hijack a load of booze, but when you got it laid out right down to the time, the place, and how many bottles, it's like money in the bank. Well, I knew right then why the envelope meant so much to Ludden Dex. What I couldn't understand was where they got it. Why they gave it to me to hang on to. Well, maybe they were working for Quinlan, but why didn't he have the papers, and why weren't they in his safe? Mike had a big one. Well, the questions were still piling up. It was an outside chance, but I couldn't stand still, so I crossed over to the Kansas side and headed down Boulder Road to Fat Annie's place. Maggie Jackson did two things good. She sang the blues better than the guy who wrote them, and she could pick up an idle rumor at three miles. Hi, Pete. Maggie, what do you know? I knew you'd be here tonight. You always come in together, troubling Pete Kelly. Yeah, I know. I never come around except when I need something. As long as I have it to give, you got it. It's my Quinlan's time in. Well, that's part of it. I'm in it up to my ears. You got an envelope, I heard. Yeah. Mike Quinlan and some of his boys have been here about an hour ago. They tore the paper off the walls looking for you and Dex and Ludd. Dex and Ludd? Mike wants all three of you. Yeah? Anything else? No. Bonnie Ricketts called for you. Did he leave a number? He's still waiting on the phone. I took the call. He said you'd end up here, so he just hung on. Well, I'll get it right now. Yeah, the boss is kind of mad. The phone's been tied up for two hours. All right, thanks, Maggie. Sure, and good luck, Pete. Hello, Bonnie. Ah, there you are, Petey. That'll be a dollar twenty-five for another three minutes. Yes, all right, operator. Alfonso, five more quarters, Oh, no, the quarters. Just a minute, Petey. Alfonso doesn't know the quarters from the house. Yeah, well, hurry up. All right. Thank you. Now then, Pete. No, no, Alfonso. No more money for the moment. What's going on, Barney? Where are you? Fort Madison 
Iowa. I'm troubleshooting for you, Pete. What'd you find out? It's a double cross. Mike Quinlan's involved in one of the biggest deals of his career, and Benny Davis, along with Dex and Lutz, stole the consignment papers. Yeah, I know. That's what's in the envelope. You better get them back to Quinlan. I understand he's been tearing up the town for them. Well, what do I do about Dex and Lud? Yes, you might easily end up like Benny Davis. Uh, seems Lud and Dex didn't want to split it three ways, so they killed him. You sure about all this? That's why I'm up here in Iowa. I suggest that you join us. No, I'll see you when you get back. It's been a gay, mad world, Petey. We drove 60 miles an hour all the way up here. Yeah? Alfonso's drunk. He thinks the phone's a slot machine. He's waiting for the payoff. <laughs> As soon as I hung up the phone, everything fell into place. I had one big worry, to get back to the club and unload those papers before Quinlan caught up with me. Well, almost everything made sense now, except the killing of Louise Davis, Benny's sister. It was easy to see why they dropped Benny along the way, but why his sister? How did she tie in? Well, on the way back to town, I mulled over a couple of possibilities, and I figured maybe I came up with the answer. I started back for town, and it was rough all the way. I kept thinking any minute I'd bump into Mike Quillen, and I couldn't be sure that I'd lost Dex and Ludd. It was almost dark by the time I got back to the club. The band was waiting around for the Sunday rehearsal. We ran through one number, and then things got cloudy. Now, Kelly. You're early, Dex. Close enough. No, not for me. You said six o'clock. Your horn's no match for this gun. Give me the envelope. Six o'clock, Dex. All right. Let's try someday, sweetheart. Hand me that plunger, will you, Red? I'll give you the pickup. tip-off and that kid in the church and Benny's sister. You had to make the big try. It was for me and you, Lud. It won't wash. You're gonna die, Dex. Pick a spot to lay down. Not in the back, Lud. You'd give me a better chance than that. Would I? Look out, Lud. Like I said, Dex, pick a spot. 
Let wraps it up, Kelly. You better sit down, Lud. No, this will do. It won't be a long wait. I don't mind standing. Suit yourself. Six o'clock, Lud. Here's your envelope. Yeah. Thanks. going to stop by. I heard the gunshots and knew you'd be around. Well, let me tell you again, Father. I'm sorry about Jake. I don't know what else to say. I'm just sorry. I believe you. We'll have the funeral for little Jake tomorrow. Maybe you want to stop by. Yeah. Some things never figure. A nine-year-old kid shot down. No reason for it. None in the world. Nine-year-old kid. It's done, Pete. Don't waste your pity on little Jake. He's got a big lead on both of us. I don't get you, Father. You and I should die as good as a nine-year-old. Pete Kelly's Blues, starring Jack Webb, with story by Jim Moser... And music by Dick Cathcart. Scoring by Matty Matlock. The music of Pete Kelly's Big Seven consists of Dick Cathcart on cornet, Matty Matlock on clarinet, Nick Fatoul on drums, Ray Sherman on piano, George Van Epps on guitar, Judd Donat on bass, Mo Schneider on trombone. The songs of Maggie Jackson were written by Arthur Hamilton. Pete Kelly's Blues is a presentation of the United States Armed Forces Radio Service. is somewhat uh, uh, interesting. You know, we, we talk a little bit about script reuse, and this is a good example. Uh, in one way, they don't reuse the entire script, but they do uh, borrow heavily from an episode of Pat Novak for Hire. Um, and uh, I'll give you an idea. The scripts really do take a different turn um, after the uh, uh, shooting occurs. Uh, but just to give you an idea of how this was uh, borrowed, uh, let's go ahead and we will take a listen to this uh, clip uh, of uh, Pat Novak uh, con- going in and being confronted by a Catholic priest in San Francisco. And this was done uh, t- about two years before this particular episode of Pete Kelly's Blues. He came to the Baroness Church, please. 
stood there for a minute looking at me. Then he motioned me inside. You want to see me, Father? Yes. He's here. Sit down. It's good, Father. Little Jake. What do you think? Yeah. He goes fast? Instantly. I'll get the guy, Father. I'm not asking that, Patsy. I'm not asking you for anything anymore. Unless I need trouble. No, somebody told you a bad story, Father. That wasn't my then. I should have known better than to call you. I should have known it meant trouble. It's your middle name, Patsy. You're married to it. You're looking at the wrong man. It wasn't my party. I called you here tonight to ask you a favor, Patsy. Anything you want, Father. It's too late now. We were going to have an outer boy picnic tomorrow at Paradise Cove. I wanted to borrow one of your boats. We won't be going now, Patsy. We've got a funeral instead. Yeah. What do you want me to say? Don't say anything, Patsy. Just listen for a minute. I asked you to come up here tonight, but I didn't tell you to bring your friends. If you've got any private fights for those waterfront hoods, that's your business. But don't bring your beasts into the church. And I tell you, I never saw the guy before. I don't know anything about it. He was shooting at you when he hit little Jake, wasn't he? What else am I supposed to think? Yeah. They find the murder gun? Nothing new. They need to leave, Patsy. I like you better without the temper, Father. And I like you better before your hands got dirty, Patsy. I warned you about that waterfront crowd, the cheap thugs, the cheap women. I told you, Patsy, roll around in dirt long enough and some of it's bound to stick to you. Got it all over your face and your hands, and it's working inside your passage. It's working in deep. That's the end of the sermon, Father. I tried to warn you, but you had to figure. So figure this one, Patsy. There's a nine-year-old kid on his way to the north. He stepped in front of a bullet and saved your life. Now go ahead. Figure. Yeah, I will, Father. But you better be on call when I catch up with a guy. He's going to have a lot of praying to do. Well, a uh, definite uh, similarity. Oh, I do prefer the uh, Pat Novak story uh, better. It was an intriguing uh, season uh, finale for Pat Novak Friar that turned out to be the series finale. I should let you know that uh, we actually only have three more episodes of Pete Kelly's Blues. So coming in four weeks, uh, be sure and listen to Leonidas Witherall. A definite change of pace, a mid-1940s detective comedy starring Walter Hamden, and that's coming in four weeks. All right, well, we turn to the listener comments. Heidi asks, I've been meaning to ask this question for a while. Why are nearly all the de- uh, detectives single, including Candy Matson? Actually, there are many... Are there many married old-time radio detectives besides uh, Mr. and Mrs. North? Um, Well, I I think that uh, one reason you don't see a whole lot of uh, married uh, radio detectives is there are some places, you know, particularly if they're happily married, you know, the plot's just not going to uh, be able to go. Uh, there certainly were uh, some married detectives. We've already played a couple, and you can go into our archives at uh, archives.greatdetectives.net, and we, we did two series back-to-back. We did The Thin Man. We did Adventures of the Abbots. Uh, in addition to that, there's the series It's a Crime, uh, Mr. Collins. And they all kind of worked uh, in a similar way with a more uh, light-hearted touch overall. And a uh, uh, and a uh, and that mixture of detective and comedy, um, 
And you see similar feel with uh, even some more modern shows like, uh, in terms of television, like Heart to Heart. And uh, I think we should also be clear in some cases, such as Holmes, Nero Wolf, and uh, Philo Vance, these sort of uh, super genius, the way the characters written is as someone who is uh, just not going to get married. It was a bit of an iconoclast. And the uh, the hard-boiled eyes, the, you know, the real cynical ones, like Sam Spade and Mike Hammer, it's kind of hard to imagine them settling down and getting married. You also have to be aware of how the listeners at home might uh, take a situation. If a uh, detective drama is too hard and too serious, and you have a married detective... I think we would probably, or at least listeners in the 1950s, would feel a whole lot uh, differently about the somewhat uh, extremely ill-advised risk that uh, Johnny Dollar took if Johnny Dollar had a wife and kid back in Artford. So if you want to have a married detective, you've got to have a, uh, you've got to have a certain tone, or I think it really would present problems uh, for listeners, particularly in that era. So if you want something different than a more light-hearted tending uh, uh, detective uh, dramas of uh, the Abbots or the Thin Man, then you don't use a married detective. Hope that answered your question. All right, well, that'll do it for today. We'll be back uh, tomorrow with Let George Do It, and then join us next Tuesday for Pete Kelly's Blues. In the meanwhile, send your comments to Box13 at GreatDetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives. And uh, give us a call, 208-991-4783. But from Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.